I'm sitting here with squadron leader Adam Collins, also known as Red Ten of the Red Arrows. So thank you so much for coming to see me today and being my guest on this podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. I remember first meeting you, Adam, when we were creating the Heroes at Highclere in September 2018 to commemorate the end of the First World War and to try to raise money for those who serve and save. And and you came and you were doing a survey and we clambered up the Tower of the Castle, which is amazing, isn't it, when you get up there? It is, and that's one of my roles as the supervisor of the team is, is having a look at the sites that we haven't displayed at before. And, and Highclere is it's an amazing site, very spectacular, but it's not without its difficulties for the display flying, especially with a team like ours and the amount of airspace and, and ground track we use. So being able to clamber up the tower and have a look at the area and, and survey what we were going to be flying over is really important. And yeah, very memorable day. It was amazing. And then I was lucky enough to have Steve Bowhill-Smith and Rick Peacock-Edwards, who was helping me put the whole thing together. And Rick was, I think, commander of the RAF in the Iraq War. So he was um, an extraordinary man and very calm. And I had gone to him asking for help. I had never met him. He came and saw me and he just sat there and said, I'll help you. What do you want me to do? And it was quite a big day, deliberately so, to remember those who flew in the air and those on the ground. And we had a Chinook and we played football and we sang and we had a church service. And I think I had 30 different ambassadors on the ground as well. So it was quite a lot coming together. Nothing, I think, like the accuracy of of the flying and the planning that all of you have to undertake. So when did the Red Arrows, when, when were they formed? So we're into our 56th display season now. We've flown two different aircraft types over that period. So first the Nat and now the Hawk more recently. But the Hawk we fly is actually the original. It's the T-Mark One, no longer used for training. We have a more advanced Hawk now that has moving maps and multifunction displays much better for trainee pilots moving onto the front line. But we're on our 56th season. We've been really doing the same thing for those years in terms of representing the Royal Air Force, representing the armed forces, but increasingly important now, representing Great Britain on a global stage. And that's, that's really one of our most important roles now is taking our red, white and blue overseas and, uh, and representing the best of British. Well, I think it's amazing, and I remember as a child, you know, whenever the Red Arrows, there's that sense of excitement. It was so epic looking up and seeing the extraordinary displays. And actually, because Highclere is quite high here, we do have a continual <laughs> circuit of usually older planes. We're sort of a beacon, I think, for when people fly over. But it, it is something about Britain is great, and Highclere and Downton have also helped with the Britain is Great campaign, which has been an honour to be involved with, and with the Department of Trade and Industry who've come here, we've hosted entrepreneurs from East and West. But of course, last year, this time last year, you were getting ready to go to North America, weren't you? Which must have been an extraordinary trip, Adam. That's right. It was a real undertaking even to get the aircraft there and back. But the whole project started about 10 months before we left, so not much time to plan. But as with everything in the military, it'll take as long as you've got. Um, so we started doing the planning along with the wider Air Force, not just the, the Red Arrows involved. And it was one of our biggest undertakings tour-wise. We spent almost three months touring North America, both the US and Canada. So we did a shortened display season in the UK, which I know disappointed lots of the fans and the, the normal air show organizers and the air show attendees. But, but the role that we conduct when we go away is, is really important the for the UK, exactly yeah. that. So we, we went through all the planning, 
we flew 12 aircraft on the tour to make sure we had a couple of spares and really went from east coast to west coast and back again going to lots of the major shows but also then going to some smaller events flying the flag and actually although we did 20 major air shows and about 20 major fly paths including places like the Golden Gate Bridge, Mount Rushmore, New York really the ground engagements we did so over 100 ground engagements uh, talking to everybody from school children through to ambassadors is really almost as important if not more important than the flying we're doing when we're on those tours so very interesting time for us a massive undertaking and very fulfilling for us especially then bringing the 12 jets back and actually all arriving back at Scampton on the same day which I think everyone assumed we'd be leaving jets all around North America and going to pick them up <laughs> throughout the winter but uh, all 12 came back on the same day um, and a great success. And then as you flew there and back you hopped from petrol point I suppose fuel pump to fuel pump I suppose in layman's language. I mentioned the the hawk that we fly is the original so no glass cockpit no moving map very very rudimentary um, in the instrument panel we have a bolt-on GPS but it's almost like um, the original Game Boy it's just a monochrome screen so taking that kind of aircraft across the Atlantic is is a very big undertaking uh, we can't air to air refuel unlike frontline aircraft so the maximum we can fly is about six to seven hundred nautical miles so to get there and back we actually flew from Scampton our home base up to Lossiemouth in the north of Scotland across to Iceland from there to Greenland Greenland to Canada and then on from there so really we're almost at our max range flying from Iceland to Greenland in terms of fuel and because of the airfields we're going to we needed very good weather there we didn't have the opportunity to fly an instrument approach so we needed the cloud to be high enough for us to get down underneath it and land so Quite an undertaking, um, certainly focused the mind going across there with only one engine, unlike uh, a larger aircraft, um, but a real adventure to set off on. Really pioneering. And one of the reasons I came across some of the extraordinary other marvellous men in their flying machines, to quote an old film, was because of the pioneering aviation and the first flight of Geoffrey de Havilland, which happened here at Highclere, which I couldn't believe. And I really discovered when we were trying to hold a celebration of 1910 when he first took off in 2010 100 years later I actually found a photograph of the old shed I found it late one night and emailed it to everybody who I thought would enjoy it, it was sort of squeaking with excitement I probably called them as well but I'm so proud of being part of a tiny part of that first story and the fifth Earl of Carnarvon was a great supporter of early pioneering aviation cars and everything like that and from Geoffrey Moore Braverson, Braverson who stayed here and then passed the shed that he'd used on to Geoffrey de Havilland and Frank Hurl and hearing their stories of how they rolled the plane down and took off in what to me looked like a Sainsbury's shopping trolley the bottom of the bravery and the courage was extraordinary. I mean, God knows how they did it. And during the First World War, when this was a hospital, mm. many of the Royal Flying Corps ended up back at Highclere because it was one of the best orthopaedic hospitals and many of them had broken or fractured legs. And Lady Carnarvon, the fifth Countess of Carnarvon, was an expert at orthopaedic surgery with the help of Robert Jones. So there's so many wonderful links. And um, Geoffrey de Havilland remained in touch with Lady Carnarvon when he then set himself up at Stag End and carried on from there setting up his rental business and which led then into the mosquito as well didn't it and all the different moths and so was the gnat did that have some relationship with Geoffrey de Havilland 
from the name or not? Or was it wholly different out of interest? I don't know if there was a connection. It was um, it was the Follandnat, was the manufacturer, similar to the Hawk in that it was used for advanced fast jet training at the time, but really not that much different in terms of the layout and the, the technology from the, the Hawk that we fly now. So I wouldn't say it's quite at the level of the de Havilland pioneering <laughs> no, age, but no. it was uh, it's not, not a million miles away. And despite over the relatively short life of aviation, when you look at the F-35 Lightning now and the, the technology involved in that compared with what was being flown 100 years ago, it's staggering. And of course, when we were here flying at the Heroes event in 2018, that was the, the centenary of the Royal Air Force. Um, and that was a really important year for, for our team as well. And the, the motto of that year for us was to commemorate, to celebrate and to inspire. So commemorating the history and, and the things that we've, we've already mentioned today, um, celebrating everything that the Royal Air Force does and continues to do around the world and then helping to inspire the next generation and that's something that we find really important in the team is inspiring um, young and old to follow their dreams be it in the military or flying or, or anything else the STEM um, the STEM topics or, or anything else and really um, that's something that I noticed on the ground at the event um, two years ago was the fact that you could see people were inspired by the, oh, wow. the football match going on, um, replicating No Man's Land and all the other events that tied in really nicely. Obviously, our display hopefully adding to the day as well. Oh, it added it enormously. Was, uh, a wonderful event. And I also, I had deliberately asked many people from different countries around the world in order to inspire them and gather them together and always promote what's great about Britain and those moments which you can then take with you as very important memories and experiences. So it was a completely extraordinary day and a special weekend and I'm immensely grateful and I did it with you know but at the end of the RAF year I then threw a, a cocktail party in the castle to commemorate the end of the RAF 100 and asked the bases from Benson, Bryce, Norton and Odium if some of the, the men who were there and their families wanted to come and sing and sing. Oh, and I had the Military Wives Choir. I don't know whether you heard about this. And they were supposed to be singing on the stairs. But in the end, it swapped round and led by the Concorde pilots and all the RAF pilots, they sang on the <laughs> stairs. <laughs> and, and the Military Wives Choir, listened. it was just hysterical. It was a really lovely evening. And I wanted to offer that as a thank you at the end of the year of the RAF 100. With Geoffrey de Havilland, he named all his planes, I think, after moths and tiger moths. And then you had the gypsy moth and then the mosquitoes. There was all the names which I sort of followed through. And I think his company then got rolled into BA Systems. But Bombardier took the DH. They then, I think, manufacture and produce in Canada. So the legacy of flight from de Havilland has, has gone mm. around the world. Yeah, absolutely. It? The naming of aircraft, it's although it's changed over the years, there's still very much a theme. So my background is flying the tornado obviously we have the lightning now and the typhoon in service so there's very much the the storm theme if you like still going on through those types interesting the way they've they've always named them through the years and they kept those themes going the other part of the heroes day which of the 2018 in which the red arrows was such a wonderful central feature was when I was writing a book about the Second World War, Adam, I found that at the end of writing the book, the epilogue was the fact that I just discovered a B-17 crashed into the hills behind the castle and went up there. And I could see with Steve Bowhill-Smith and Paul McTaggart with his metal detector, we found parts of it. And But more importantly, we began to find the men who had sadly been flying on it. And then from there, we found their descendants, their children, their grandchildren. 
And thereafter, um, research clearly showed there was another seven planes that crashed during the Second World War at Highclere, two of which were mosquitoes, which were again the de Havilland plane. Out of the story of the Air Force, the American one and the English one, came the desire for Geordie and I, my husband and I, to create a, a statue to commemorate them. So I did it with, you've seen him, but he's carved from a uh, yeah. cedar tree. We've tried to carve some benches into shapes of the wings, but it's become such a poignant place that people pause. I need to carve many more benches and actually put some of the letters because some of the descendants have now flown over from America to pay their respects. And the letters are so extraordinary, you know, from William Dutton, an American airman, who was sort of 20 when he died. And there's a letter from his friend at college writing to his father saying, perhaps none of us will ever know where William died, but wherever he does, the soul will be made richer by his blood. And these letters are so moving. And none of them knew where their ancestors, where their relatives had died. So it's a tiny sort of snapshot, if you like, into part of the story of these extraordinary planes and how they came into being and the bravery and courage of the men who flew them who had actually so little training compared to all the detailed training that you've been through because how many hours must you fly before you get into a Red Arrow, for example? So for, for joining the team, we have a, a prerequisite um, criteria, if you like, one of which is a, a minimum number of hours. So. Uh, it's 1500 hours of fast jet flying so we've all flown on the front line um, and that's really how we can best represent the Royal Air Force because we've all experienced frontline operations but also the level of experience is required to do the type of flying that we do so we are all relatively experienced and that's that's something that's been held true on the team for a number of years but it's interesting when you're learning about the characters that were involved in these the aircraft that you've been discussing and one thing with our selection, everyone always asks whether we're all a similar character or whether you're looking for a certain type of person. It's not so much that we're the same type of people. We all have similar traits and similar qualities that are really important to have on the team, but we're all very different characters. And that's something that I'm sure you found researching the people that were flying these aircraft here is they've all got a different story to tell from their background, from their character, from what they've been up to in their, their time in the Air Force or the Army. And we are all very different people, but those common traits we have and the experience that we need to become part of the team are also very important. I think you're creating something which is you've got the time and the thought process behind it. What occurred to me was how so many of the men who were in the planes were there by chance, actually, mm. Adam, because there was just this general need to volunteer to join and they had very few flying hours in terms of navigation and the guys who were flying the mosquitoes and sadly crashed their inexperience was what caused the crash and then just going up with a friend for a jaunt um, and the friend wasn't that experienced they only did a few hundred hours that jaunt didn't go very well because of the the extraordinary weather, the clouds and the, the rain, which is so prevalent in this country compared to the clear skies of Arizona. And I imagine on your American tour, you did have many clearer skies or not? It was a bit of a mix, to be honest. So we had some challenging days with the weather, especially coming home, because although we went across and back via similar routes across the Atlantic, we went there in August and came back in October. So the weather in Iceland and Greenland in October was, was very different from earlier in the year. So 
that did cause us a few delays and some replanning and battling with that weather and then over in the in the mainland US when we were on the, the west coast in California the weather was glorious but it, it wasn't without its headaches moving across the country. I remember there was one particular flight when we were going into the New York area uh, lots of thunderstorm cells around and with our Hawk being the original model there's no weather radar nothing really helping us there other than air traffic uh, telling us where those storms are and you can see them to some extent but you can't really tell how vigorous the turbulence is and so on so trying to plan around that was was really quite tricky so that did hark back to some of the, the feelings I'd imagine <laughs> of a pioneering airman flying around the world. Definitely. So Adam, can I ask you, did you always want to fly? Did you want to go into the RAF? Was that your dream? So I've, I've always been interested in flying through my father who, although he wasn't a pilot or isn't a pilot, he has always built and flown radio controlled aircraft and been interested in full-size aviation. And my grandparents also used to live on Anglesey where our fast jet flying training is still carried out. So going to spend the summers in Anglesey, I'd see the Hawks flying from RAF Valley and really that spurred it on. I joined the cadets, went through the cadet system, applied to be sponsored by the Royal Air Force at university and then flew on the university air squadron. So not actually too far from here. I flew from Boscombe down right. whilst I was at Southampton. And then really one thing led to another mm -hmm. and it's, it's something that I always talk to young people about, be they cadets or uh, youngsters in their little red suits at air shows. And they always ask about what they should do and, and how they can join the Red Arrows and all the rest of it. And the thing I always tell them is it's, it's important to remember that we were all like them one day and you don't get there in one step. There's, there's so many baby steps, if you like, to, to get through the various stages. And what seems really daunting when you're 12, 14, 16 years old looking at careers and, and where you want to end up, actually, we're all there. It's just one step at a time. And if you've got the enthusiasm and, and the desire to do it and, and the interest in aviation, which obviously we all have, then that's what spurs you on. So that's really what drove me to, to want to join. And really for me, joining the Royal Air Force was going to be the best flying that I could ever do. So yeah. lots of people go into commercial aviation and so on, and, and many people leave the, the Air Force to do that. But for me, the type of flying you can do in fast jets and so on, obviously you can only do in, in the military and in the Royal Air Force. So. That was really what spurred me on and, and set my sights on that. How did you segue from that into the Red Arrows? As I mentioned, to, to join the Red Arrows, you need a rel relatively high experience of flying fast jets in the military. And I was very fortunate. I've done several different things in my career, including three years on exchange with the Australian Air Force. So I flew an aircraft called the F-111 over in Australia mainly through the tornado in the Royal Air Force and then through another number of other jobs, got to the stage where applying to the Red Arrows became an option. The job I do on the team as the team supervisor, I'm, I'm Red 10, so I fly with the team on all the transits. Uh, I do the photo chase um, to do the air-to-air -air photography and so on, but actually during the displays, I'm on the ground supervising the show and talking to the crowd as well, so doing the commentary. So my role specifically is, is quite different from the normal um, Reds 2 to 9, and then obviously Red 1, the team leader, um, has the additional responsibility of, of leading the whole thing. Um, but I get to see really the best of both worlds, and for me, that portion of the job is, is very interesting. It's different every day, and it's a unique opportunity and a unique challenge within the Air Force, which is what really drove me to apply for the job. The supervisor job is, is really based on broader flying experience, supervision experience and then you're applying that to display flying so I haven't actually been two to nine and flown the displays but I do a smaller workup to enable me to fly as, as the 10th aircraft in formation and then to do the photo chasing um, for the practice displays and for those fly pass and, and really that is one of the most fun parts of my job the North America tour 
I had the opportunity to do the photo shoots over New York, over the Golden Gate Bridge, and all the, the major landmarks, which really, some of those images are just burnt into my uh, brain and will be forevermore. And the one of Highclere Castle. <laughs> Absolutely, I was, I was going to come I'm on to joking. that as being the, the highlight. <laughs> it must have been absolutely amazing. I've travelled around America a little bit, I give talks and things like that, but which I've thoroughly enjoyed. Funny enough, probably the opposite of you, I fly in and then if I can, I like taking a, a, a car or a train and seeing the landscape. So being on tour in North America, you must also have met some of the iconic American equivalent team. So what was that like, Adam? That was a real privilege. We we worked with the Thunderbirds, who were the US Air Force team, the Blue Angels, the US Navy team, and also in Canada, uh, worked with the Snowbirds as well, the Royal Canadian team. And it was a, a real privilege. We, we have a, a common end uh, to what we're trying to achieve, but we get there through slightly different means. And it was really interesting, as it always is with other display teams around the world, to compare notes on how we go about our business, both training and displaying, um, and then the end product and how we differ. So I think the, the North American public will have seen that we go about things slightly differently. Our display is a little bit shorter than the, the North American teams. We don't use music during the display, so I'll commentate, but we have quite a compact show size-wise because really the nature of how the Hawk flies compared with the F-18 or the F-16. Uh, but it was a real privilege to take our show over there. Uh, the, the red, white and blue smoke is something they don't see very often, which it's uh, very easy for us to then replicate the Stars and Stripes flag with our smoke or oh, the, the Canadian flag. A little bit more <laughs> difficult if you want anything other than red, white and blue in your flag, but uh, <laughs> it was great to do that. And one of the, well, several of the highlights of the tour were with the other teams. So for example, in New York, we flew down the Hudson River and round the Statue of Liberty with the Thunderbirds. Um, and we were in formation with them down the Hudson. And actually I was photo chasing that one and the Thunderbirds were supposed to have a photo ship up as well. Um, that aircraft unfortunately wasn't serviceable. So in the end, I ended up scooting up to the front, getting some photos of the Thunderbirds, wow. then spinning back round and, <laughs> and rejoining the Reds. So quite a day out for me, that one. Uh, we also worked with the Blue Angels. I was fortunate enough to fly in the back seat of one of them for a practice display again at New York. So all of these experiences, and then Amazing. with the Canadians, what better backdrop than Toronto? So the Toronto display with the, the skyline over the water, we did a joint formation practice, and we actually were flying Chris Hadfield in one of our aircraft on that, the, the Canadian astronaut. So working with those teams, a great privilege, and really being in North America for, for three months meant that we we were doing it on a regular basis as opposed to just a brief exposure to them. So Much deeper collaboration, isn't it? Absolutely, and when you disregard the differences between how we display and the culture and so on, actually deep down, the, the way the teams work and the, the camaraderie and so on is exactly the same. It's just done very slightly differently. Must have been so exciting. Honestly, I, I wish I'd been there. I suppose for the Red Arrows in their planes, they can't hear the reaction on the ground, whereas you are on the ground with everybody. And I don't know, we're all clapping, laughing, gasping with excitement. It, it is the most extraordinary experience, an amazing display. But it, do you have the same reaction in America or is it a little bit different over there? It's interesting. The reaction um, was subtly different, I think, mainly based on, on cultural differences. So one of the great parts of my job um, at any, any country we're displaying is I do get that direct feedback from the crowd. And to some extent, I can pass it on to the, the nine ship by um, pressing transmit on my radio when, when the cheers are happening and so on. Um, but in the UK, it tends to be the gas and the U's and the R's and then applause and so on. And you can tell which manoeuvres are, are popular and that will actually feed into what we put into the show the following year. 
but the reactions in North America were subtly different and you could even detect changes depending on where you were within the continent so much more of the the whooping and hollering and cheering and it was a lot easier to be honest for me to engage with the crowd and, and get the crowd going whereas in the UK I do that a little bit but uh, really people tend to be there to, to watch the spectacle and then they'll show their appreciation whereas uh, in North America it was very much more getting the crowd involved and uh, it was it was easier to do that and it's just subtle differences you could detect between not just the UK and being in North America but the differences between the US and Canada and different parts of the US as well so very interesting and really something that um, only I get exposed to in, in, in the Red Arrows. So, yeah, really, really good fun and interesting. And I gather with some of the American shows, they play music as well for, for the different manoeuvres in the air, which must be different. They do. So the, the ground support element of the teams is one of the things that's very different because of how uh, the UK air show calendar works and the fact that we'll display at multiple venues in one day in the Red Arrows. We need to be extremely flexible with how we can move around the country and how we can take our display safely from one show to another on the same day. Whereas the North American teams tend to stay in one location for a number of days and then move on to the next one. So with that in mind, I'm on the ground supervising the show. I have a rucksack with my radio, um, a compass, an anemometer to check the wind, and then the show organizer will provide me with a microphone. And really that's all I need. I have a camera person with me who normally flies in the back seat of my aircraft. Um, and the two of us, really, if we're there on the ground, that's, that's what's required for the show to happen. Now, the North American teams tend to do much more of their show accompanied by rock music. Um, and that involves a lot more setup and a lot more uh, kit, essentially, on the ground, as, as well as personnel. So I think at one show, I counted 12 or 13 people on the ground supporting the Blue Angels with mixing decks, uh, various audio-visual pieces of kit. Uh, there's people checking the timings are all working properly and then somebody doing the commentary and supervising so i, I felt a little outnumbered with <laughs> one camera person me with my rucksack and then next to me is the blue angel set up with a big box trailer and about 12 people so um, again slight differences but it means we can then um, jump in a helicopter go back to where the aircraft are and then pack up move on to the next place and our footprint on the ground is relatively small but again just these small differences that really come about with how we how we need to operate in each of our countries. I think one of the most iconic images of the Red Arrows is not just the planes it's also all the nine pilots and yourself obviously the Red Ten in the red suits Adam and I that's such a trademark so I are you actually recognised out of the suits? Is, is that, how does it work? <laughs> Very rarely, to be honest. So the, when you're in the red suit, obviously, that you're, I mean, your chest gets bigger, you stand taller when you're wearing the red suit. It's, it's a real privilege to wear it. And there's only ever 11 of us that wear red during the season. So the, the one to nine flying the display, myself is red 10, and then our officer commanding, who is um, red 11. It's, it's, a, it's a funny situation, actually, because you're exposed to almost an element of what somebody who's, who's famous would be exposed to when you're at a show. Uh, people want to talk to you, they want to ask you questions, they want you to sign things. But as soon as you take that red suit off, it's extremely rare for somebody to recognize you. So it's very much the, the honor of wearing that suit and then you're passing that on to the, the next team as you, you move on. We normally do about three years on the team and then either back to frontline duties or, or instructional duties. So 
although we're still in the Royal Air Force and very much serving officers, the life that we lead during the display season is representing the Royal Air Force, representing the military and Great Britain, but it's in a very different manner from what we're used to from either instructing or being on the front line. So I would summarise it as a privilege and almost an, a slight glimpse of what it would be like to be famous, but it's the suit and very much the role that's famous. Sounds like you have the best of both worlds, actually, because you, you, you can have slip all out of the it very quickly. and then slip out of it again, which is, I know that some actors cannot be recognised in the street. I think most of the Downton Abbey actors are recognised in and out of the costumes they wear on Downton Abbey, which I think must be much more challenging and much harder, actually. You don't have any moments when someone might be in today's world taking a photograph. But what was perhaps the most surprising thing that's happened to you, being one of the Red Arrows, or what has most surprised you about being part of the team? I think it's very much connected with that, not the persona that you take on, but when you're wearing the red suit and you're you're representing um, everything that the team stands for, it's the level of interest that the public has. And really some of the, the very informed and educated questions that you get, not just from diehard air show goers who, who want to ask you technical questions and so on, but it's really it's surprising to me the, the difference that you can make by taking the time to talk to people, especially youngsters who might be nervous about asking you a question and just simple things like bending down, talking to a young child, proving that we're all human and that actually we were four or five years old once wanting to be in the Air Force or fly aeroplanes and talking to them about what they need to do to get there. And it's just very, very fulfilling. And the fact that you can talk to somebody and hopefully influence and inspire them to go on to to follow their dreams and do what they want to do. So I think that's the, the aspect that I didn't really appreciate would would be so satisfying. Mm. The inspiration to follow your dreams and just take part and be on a journey, isn't it? Then of course you also flew with the French quite recently, didn't you? For the we did, and that was that was an adventure in itself. It's one of the few public events that we've done this year. Obviously, with the difficult times, we've delayed the way we train. We've we've down the tempo of our training so that we can ensure the safety of of the whole team. The the Red Arrows is 120 strong with the engineers and support staff. So really, with the the restrictions nationally that are in now, we're we've changed the way that we train to ensure everybody's safety. But that's that's led to us being ready to display slightly later than usual. We did a, a great day with, with the French where we flew the jets across to France, met up with the Patrie de France outside Paris, and then we conducted a formation fly pass with them over Paris, landed for refuel, flew all the jets back to the UK where the weather wasn't quite as nice as in Paris, <laughs> a slight replan at RAF Bryce Norton, and then flew over London with us this time leading the Patrie de France over both both prime ministers on the ground so quite an adventure with the weather but also bringing it all together and then weather clearing at the last minute and managing to get the the two formation teams over London having been over Paris the same day so some exciting opportunities even in, in this year of difficult times for everybody. Yes it has been challenging times it really has and um, of course VE Day we also hope to have a small air display to commemorate VE Day on May the 8th this year, which didn't take place like anything else. We're funny enough going to pull a few things together into a history festival in October to just pause for a second and say thank you because we are going through our challenges of which will probably be for a few months or into next year. And VE Day was the end of some five years when 
people's lives were completely disrupted entirely from what they could eat, from their resources. The whole country was nationalised for some five years. So I do want to pull that forward to think about the aftermath and again share a few moments about what does make Britain great because it's a bit of a muddled world at the moment. But Highclere anyway has been here since 749 AD, 1200 years now if my maths is sort of right. So I'm hoping we'll be here for a few a few more hundred years and I, and I really hope Adam the Red Arrows will be giving such pleasure and excitement and enjoyment and inspiration to many people for many years to come and thank you so much for coming sitting with me today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'm always pleased to hear from you, so please leave a review and subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes. You can also ask questions or make suggestions by emailing podcast at highclearcastle.co.uk.